Welcome, and thank you for joining us for Neuroscience CME Journal Club. The goal of each journal club is to evaluate the latest evidence in clinical literature and translate that evidence into improvements in the care of patients. CME Outfitters, LLC, is the accredited provider for this Neuroscience CME continuing education activity. This educational activity is supported by an independent medical educational grant from Shire. This activity is titled Child ADHD, Exploring Complexities of Care, Part 1. Our guest host for today's activity is Dr. Robert L. Finling. Dr. Finling is the Rocco L. Motto, MD, Chair of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine and the Director of the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at University Hospital's Case Medical Center in Cleveland, Ohio. Dr. Finling has disclosed that he receives or has received research support, acted as a consultant, and or served on a speaker's bureau for Abbott Laboratories, Adrenex Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, BioVale Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Bristol-Myers Squibb Company, Forest Laboratories Incorporated, GlaxoSmithKline, Johnson & Johnson Pharmaceutical Research and Development, LLC, Kim Farm Incorporated, Eli Lilly & Company, H. Lundbeck AS, NeuroFarm Group, PLC, Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation, Organon Pharmaceuticals USA Incorporated, Atsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated, Pfizer Incorporated, Santa Fe Aventus, Sepracor Incorporated, Shire Pharmaceuticals, Solvay Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Supernus Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Validius, and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. Today's featured author is Gita H. Lubka, Ph.D. Dr. Lubka is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Notre Dame, Notre Dame, Indiana. Dr. Lubka has no financial disclosures to report. Today's featured commentator is Dr. L. Eugene Arnold. Dr. Arnold is Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry at the Ohio State University College of Medicine in Columbus, Ohio. Dr. Arnold has disclosed that he receives research support from Autism Speaks, Curemark, Eli Lilly and Company, National Institute of Mental Health, Neurofarm, Targacept, and Shire Pharmaceuticals. He serves as a consultant to or on the advisory boards of Abbott Laboratories, AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, Neurofarm, Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation, Organon, Shire Pharmaceuticals, and Targacept. He receives speaker honoraria from Shire Pharmaceuticals and Targacept. Disclosures of faculty financial relationships and full biographical profiles can be found at neurosciencecme.com forward slash 403. The faculty have been informed of their responsibility to disclose to the audience if they will be discussing off-label or investigational uses of products or devices. Over the next hour, Dr. Finling and Dr. Lubka will be discussing an article in the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry titled, Maternal Ratings of Attention Problems in ADHD, Evidence for the Existence of a Continuum. Afterwards, Dr. Finling and Dr. Arnold will be taking questions regarding the article. At the end of the CE activity, participants should be able to, one, interpret data supporting that ADHD is best conceptualized as a continuous trait rather than a categorical diagnosis, and two, identify clinical implications associated with the evidence that ADHD exists on a severity continuum. To receive CE credit for this activity, you must complete the post-test and evaluation at neurosciencecme.com forward slash test. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy today's Journal Club. Hello, this is Dr. Bob Findling. I have with me today uh, Dr. Gita Lubke from uh, the University of Notre Dame, and we'll be talking a little bit about uh, her most recent paper published in the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry uh, in November uh, regarding uh, the evidence for the existence of a continuum in ADHD based on maternal ratings. So, uh, Dr. Lupke, welcome. Thank you. And uh, maybe you can uh, at least start us off for now just briefly describing your paper and a little bit about what you uh, set out to do. Okay. So, the objective of the paper was to use a relatively new statistical method to analyze 
questionnaire data and to address the question whether ADHD, the phenotype of ADHD should be conceived of in terms of subtypes or rather uh, in terms of um, severity differences, liability that can go from very low liability to higher liability to develop ADHD. And we applied that uh, statistical method to uh, data from the Dutch Twin Registry. Um, some of my collaborators on that paper are involved in the, in the Dutch Twin Registry. Dirk Baumsma is actually heading that data, the data management of this uh, very large data set. So what we did was using the child behavior checklist, ADHD set of the CBCL, and we used data from Dutch boys at age 7, 10, and 12. The rationale to use data at three different time points was that in a previous study I carried out with a different data set and different collaborators, in older children and adolescents, uh, one of the critiques at the time was, well, the subtypes might be more pronounced closer to latency age of ADHD. So in this study, we uh, aimed at looking whether at a younger age, the subtypes, there was more evidence for subtypes uh, than uh, at the later age because our previous study also didn't indicate any evidence uh, in favor of subtypes and rather provided evidence uh, in terms of a continuum, underlying continuum. So in this study, we were especially happy to have a very large data set and use this statistical method at three different time points. The uh, results that we found were uh, that the, uh, again, no evidence for subtypes at any of the ages. There was not a more pronounced, more evidence uh, uh, at a younger age, uh, rather at all three time points, the same pattern of results emerged and uh, was indicating that um, the responses on the attention subscale of the child behavior checklist, that those responses on those items should be, well, they fitted better to a model that was set up in terms of a continuum for, for severity of attention problems. And then the feature that we added in this study was, well, you can always argue, well, okay, so you have the uh, child behavior checklist, but that is not necessarily the same as DSM ADHD. So what we did on a subset of our of these Dutch twins, of the, the boys, we only use the males because the prevalence is higher in males. And uh, so we also had, on a subset of, of these uh, boys, we had uh, diagnoses of ADHD according to DSM-5. And so we mapped those findings, those diagnoses, on to the model that was set up to, to correspond to a continuum of ADHD. And those results showed that the boys with an ADHD diagnosis for the independent, basically, for uh, inattentiveness, hyperactivity, or the combined subtype, they all were mapped on the high end of the continuum of, uh, well, of attention problems as measured by the CDCL. So this kind of fortified our findings uh, that DSM diagnoses of ADHD correspond to high end or high scores um, of uh, CBCL attention items and therefore fortified our uh, conclusion that ADHD should be conceived of uh, in terms of continuum rather than in terms of different subtypes. Okay, well that, that's very helpful that regardless of ADHD subtype, these youngsters were pretty much symptomatic across a continuum, and the only thing that differed was their symptomatic expression. Is that what you're uh, uh, wanting yeah. to find? Yeah, yeah, that, that uh, would be correct. I mean, there was a what we found was that the subjects, and we're talking about sample sizes of uh, at age seven, we had uh, a little bit more than eight thousand subjects at age 10 and 12, the, the numbers were slightly lower. This is an ongoing longitudinal 
uh, study the Dutch Twin Registry, which explains the small sample size at higher ages. Um, so the sample sizes were really large. So if they are, I have done a, quite some methodological work on, on the statistical methods that we use and showing that at these sample sizes, if there are subtypes, you should have the statistical power to detect them. But in these samples, uh, we did not find any groupings, any clusters of subjects in terms of, oh, this is in a, an inattentive group, this is a hyperactive group, and this is a combined subtype group, and these are the, the uh, children without any major problems in terms of attention deficit. Rather, what we found was that there were groupings in terms of severity. So you had one class was it was very mild attention problems, and then uh, a moderate class with slightly elevated symptoms, and then we had a severe class. And when we were mapping the DSM diagnosis onto these three quantitatively different groups of subjects, uh, then the, um, those with a positive uh, uh, diagnosis of uh, ADHD were in the severe class and only very few of the uh, inattentive subtype was in the moderate class. None of the diagnosed children were in the mild class, uh, and the mild class was obviously the largest class. So now let me ask you a couple of questions about your uh -huh. choices of methods because First of all, one of the things that I think you pointed out right at the beginning of your review of this uh, very interesting paper is that, that this used a new statistical method. Now, our, le our, our listeners are uh, clinicians who might not have great uh, statistical expertise, but knowing that, could you perhaps explain what makes this new statistical method novel and why it was an interesting tool to use uh, for this question that you uh, mm -hmm. thought was so important to pose? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I can at least try. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it, it is a, a, a rather com complex statistical uh, model that we fitted to the data. Some of the audience might be familiar with latent class analysis. Latent class analysis is a very old method to find groups of subjects that are similar to each other in a sample. So if you collect data uh, on a questionnaire, say, and you apply a latent class model, then what this model is going to do for you is group the subjects that are more similar to each other than two subjects uh, in, 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 a different, uh, in a different grouping. So basically, the latent classes in a latent class analysis refer to groups of subjects that are kind of clusters of subjects that are kind of similar uh, uh, to each other. Now, primarily, uh, how it was developed initially, the latent class analysis did not allow for any correlations of the items within such a grouping. So say you get a cluster of subjects and you have uh, the attention items from the TBCL, then the assumption was that these items do not correlate within a group. Now, this is a very unlikely assumption because it's a questionnaire. These items are all measuring some aspect of attention problems. So what these new methods do, uh, the, the type of statistical model that we use, is actually extend this latent class model uh, and combine it with factor analysis uh, to have a more complicated model where you actually allow for correlations between the items within each grouping. So within each group of subjects, Again, the, the, the groups of subjects are the groups that are more similar to each other. Uh, you can fit a factor model um, basically saying, okay, so we have uh, a couple of items measure hyperactivity, a couple of items measure impulsivity, and a couple of items measure inattent inattentiveness. So you have the possibility to specify a factor model that capture the correlations between the items for each group. And then uh, you build up step-by-step uh, step you build up basically this complex model and then you fit it to the data and then you can compare that to other data. You can compare this model to say for three groups, four groups, two groups uh, um, with different structures and then you can select that model that best describes your sample. And that is exactly what we have done. We have fitted different types of models 
and the models that corresponded to a continuum within each group, those models were by far the best fitting models. I mean, you can also fit models that correspond to subtypes, and but those models did not fit the data as well. Okay. So the, the, the other way to think about this, I guess, is, you know, you're able to describe things with more detail with this uh, new analytic strategy. But one of the other things that, you know, certainly was interesting to me was that you actually did these analyses off of a twins registry. And I'm uh -huh. curious of all the epidemiological samples or samples to think about, uh, why a twins registry? Well, first of all, these data, there are not that many really large data sets that test subjects on so many different items and that have longitudinal data sets uh, that actually uh, uh, provide the, uh, the sample size necessary for these statistical methods. Relatively sure that the, that the uh, results are trustworthy, you do need extremely large sample sizes. The fact that this is a twin registry was not really exploited in the specific analysis. Uh, we, used, we did not use the uh, genetic uh, information that is contained in, 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 the, in the twin data set for this study. We basically used uh, the, the data only on an individual level, but not as a pedigree. Okay, so that's what, so in, in short, let me make sure I understand you. The yeah. fact that it was a twins registry wasn't as important that they were twins, but it was a large sample, yeah. a sample of convenience that had as another key asset not only its substantial uh, sample size, but the fact that it also had a, a longitudinal group of patients across uh, an age group of interest. That is correct. It also allows uh, or has the potential in the future to actually uh, use the genetic information in similar studies, but that is not something we have done in this particular paper yet. Yeah, so I guess that's actually, <laughs> but that's actually a very good segue. Uh, so I guess the first would be, what do you think the key implications of your results are? And then maybe if after you perhaps let us know what you think the key implications of this are. What would you like to do next based on these results and based on this data set? Well, the, the key results of this study are uh, that, that I think that the, uh, that the ADHD phenotype should, uh, that there's more evidence in, in terms of an underlying continuum. This obviously has consequences for uh, genetic studies in terms of if you have subtypes that are really well-defined or pronounced in, in different types of behaviors, different types of uh, symptoms that are endorsed by the participants of the study, then um, that has the implica uh, implication for genetic research that you would look for subtype-specific genes or, gene or markers, whereas if there is a continuum that basically uh, uh, pushes that type of research in a different direction that you don't differentiate between subjects in terms of subtypes, but include that, try to extract this continuum and try to use that information in, in genetic studies. Another um, aspect that is, I think, um, important uh, was the finding that the inattentiveness tended to be slightly less. I mean, the, the ADHD, the diagnosis of inattentiveness was also, there were subjects with inattentiveness in the moderate group, a smaller group, but the severe attention problems were definitely more the hyperactive subtype and the, uh, and the combined. So there is a little bit of a spread with inattentive symptoms more at the lower end of the continuum. So this is also something that might be exploited in, in future studies. Now, what I, right now, for, for me, this study was a replication study because we did a previous study with a Finnish birth cohort um, that was a collaboration with researchers from UCLA, uh, Susan Smalley, and, uh, and people from her lab. In, in that study that was also published in, uh, in JCAP, 
I think in 2007. And that study was also, again, was a very, very large uh, sample. We found similar results. So for me, the, the, the focus on establishing or trying to find evidence from a statistical um, point of view, um, find, uh, trying to, to tackle this question, well, is it a continuum or is, it, uh, is, it, uh, is there evidence for, for subtypes? I, I think I'm, I'm kind of satisfied with this replication now in basically three different, uh, at three, four different age groups and in two uh, different uh, samples. So I am personally probably not going to try to replicate the same uh, type of study again, but I rather in my more recent research focus on, uh, on well, genetic uh, implications of uh, and how to, how to incorporate genetic information in this type of modeling. So um, knowing that you've got that moving forward, can you give me any specific details about what you might uh, have your next study? Um, no, not yet, because we are uh, still in a phase where we're trying to conceive how to best approach this. Uh, so that is would be like would going a little bit too far to already talk about this. Okay, well, that sounds good. Well, look, let me first of all thank you for taking the time to talk with us, and uh, I really do appreciate uh, your thoughtful explanation of your paper. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, so thank you very much. We've had Dr. Uh, Lubke uh, join us. This is uh, Dr. Bob Findling. I do want to mention that we're fortunate enough to also have uh, Dr. Eugene Arnold, Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry at uh, Ohio State University Nizonger Center and the Department of Psychiatry and College of Medicine at The Ohio State University in uh, Columbus, Ohio. And while we're going ahead with uh, getting phone calls as well as uh, online questions. I, I certainly want to say while we're waiting for this, I'd certainly like to uh, ask our audience and let the, our audience know uh, that there are additional online resources and those can be uh, found at uh, www.neurosciencecme, that's one word, neurosciencecme.com. Now at the conclusion of the Q&A session, uh, you will be automatically re redirected to the site, and I certainly encourage you to take advantage of uh, uh, this evidence-based uh, resource. So at that point, let me uh, at least go to some questions, and certainly uh, there are a couple coming in already, so that's great and certainly highly encouraged. And so maybe the best thing to uh, start off with is um, a question about how, how youngsters with comorb uh, comorbid disorders are placed along this continuum. Certainly, uh, comorbidity is the rule, not the exception in ADHD. And uh, how, how are those youngsters uh, conceived, uh, for example? Um, are they seen more severely along the continuum, or, or how, is, how are they conceptualized? So uh, does anyone want to get started, Gene or uh, Gita? Um. I, I, of course, don't have any uh, any information about how the comorbidity uh, plots onto this. Uh, perhaps that was in the data set that that Gita had. Um, I, I do want to make a few comments, though, about the the study itself. This should be a very popular study because it um, uh, part of it uh, validates what we've known all along, and it's always uh, nice to have things confirmed that you already believed. Uh, for many years, we've been presenting <clears throat> ADHD syndrome as being like blood pressure, where uh, you essentially have too much of a good thing. Everybody uh, needs a little bit of uh, impulsiveness, a little bit of ability to be distracted, uh, some level of, um, of uh, activity uh, in moderation. It's called assertiveness. Uh, and uh, th the problem is that uh, some individuals uh, have too much of a good thing. Um, however, um, and, and so I think the, the um, demonstration of the continuum is, is valuable uh, in uh, helping to provide a scientific uh, base for uh, this clinical uh, interpretation. Um, 
I think, though, to say that this, uh, to counterpose this to uh, subtype categorization uh, is a little bit off the mark and goes beyond the data. Uh, for one thing, um, the, uh, the DSM-4-18 symptoms are not really represented very well in the data set that was used. The 11 symptoms from the CBCL that were used, I, I was able to map about four of them onto each of the nine uh, symptom lists uh, that are mentioned in DSM-4. Uh, so we don't have a complete picture of what characterizes the, the subtypes as used in, <clears throat> in actual diagnosis. Um, the, the other thing is uh, there are, there's other literature that supports uh, the distinction of subtypes, including uh, subtle differences in treatment response. Um, so I, I don't think uh, recognizing a continuum necessarily has to rule out the, the validity of subtypes. Now, maybe the subtypes are not quite on the mark. For example, maybe what we should be having is uh, one uh, that uh, essentially includes combined type and um, hyperactive impulsive, and then have a separate one that's uh, sluggish cognitive tempo type, which uh, is largely represented in the in attentive. I, I think uh, there's a lot more work to be done on that to uh, figure out what the various subtypes ought to be. But one thing that I think is very a very valid point that was in the discussion of the paper is the clinicians tend to treat all the subtypes pretty much the same anyhow, so that for practical clinical purposes, uh, it's uh, not a, such a pressing issue. So now, Gene, as, we, as, as you walk through this, certainly you mentioned DSM-4 nosology. Mm -hmm. but, you know, certainly we're now moving towards the era of DSM-5, and, you know, what is discussed is typically categorical classifications of folks. And, and so one of our questions has to do to what extent are the findings like these, uh, what do they mean for DSM-5? Yeah, I, I, and I agree that um, there needs to be more attention in DSM-5 to the quantitative aspect, the, the dimensional aspect, and um, uh, different um, uh, thresholds for different ages and sex um, in order to uh, bring it more into line with uh, this kind of thinking. Now, this, the, the, now, the question would be, though, don't we do that as clinicians anyhow, that we sort of... Uh, have in our mind's eye a developmental expectation that we see whether or not a youngster. That's right. Yeah. Get... As I said, it's nice to have scientific evidence for what we've known all along. <laughs> <laughs> Which is never such a bad thing, I guess. Right. Uh, <laughs> so let me ask you. Um, you know, moving back to this continuum uh, again, what do these have treatment options? Certainly, diagnostically, we think about a continuum. Do these have treatment options as far as, or, or treatment implications as far as you're concerned? Uh, you're asking me? Yes. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, and again, um, we do have in DSM-4 uh, classification as mild, moderate, or severe. It's, it's a, an extra uh, uh, phrase that's supposed to be added uh, when you make the diagnosis, not only of the type, but also the severity is supposed to be mentioned. And I, I think um, if it's severe, uh, you, you sort of uh, have to go to the heavy-hitting treatments right off the bat. You've got a, you're dealing with an urgent situation. The kid's going to be expelled uh, or um, uh, they're in trouble with the court for, for some activity they were involved in. So you need to do something pretty quick, and so you're, you're forced to uh, medication right off the bat, not, not that you rule out other things. If you have a, a milder case, uh, which would probably fall into this class two uh, that's shown in the article, the, the moderate ones, then um, you can, uh, say, try some behavioral treatment first, uh, maybe uh, the uh, fatty, essential fatty acids and uh, um, other treatments uh, uh, that uh, there, there are multitudes, dozens being advocated, and many of them have some evidence of at least a uh, a medium effect, not not 
usually as strong as the uh, stimulant medication, but but a medium effect. And uh, so you can try those things, um, and uh, maybe uh, you don't need to go to medication. Uh, maybe you don't even need a, a really uh, comprehensive uh, behavioral treatment uh, with some uh, minor adjustments in the, in the child's environment. Uh, so it, it, the severity certainly does uh, affect the treatment planning. Okay. Well, now um, we've had answered and talked a little bit about some of the questions that have uh, come through the um, internet. Uh, maybe uh, maybe we can ask our operators if there's any questions via the telephone. Certainly, sir. At this time, ladies and gentlemen, we'd like to remind you that if you do have a phone question, simply press the star then one on your touchstone phone. You may withdraw your question at any time by pressing the pound key. Again, star one to ask a phone question. Okay, so do we have any questions already online, or should we move back to the Internet? Uh, uh, yes, sir. We do have a question from the side of Joan Moreau. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Hi, I'm a child psychiatrist in central Pennsylvania. Um, my question about the continuum is that we know that an IQ is on a continuum, and that's a bell curve, and I would expect blood pressure also to be on a continuum, probably a bell curve. Does this study imply that the continuum for ADHD is also a bell curve? Yes, but you have to use the right scale for it. Uh, the, the SWAN, for example. I, can I can I add something to this? Um, this of course. Is speaking. Um, actually, what we did in this study is not impose a bell curve type uh, distribution on the attention data but rather what's called a mixture distribution. So we assume that, they, that there might actually be clusters of people in the population that are more similar to each other. And what we found was that these clusters in the population that they uh, correspond to, well, one, the majority group, the, the biggest group were the ones that exhibit very, very low uh, um, uh, symptom endorsements. The, moderate class was uh, <clears throat> smaller and had a, a slight heightened um, symptom endorsements, especially on the inattention items. And then the most severe of the three classes, those were the ones with the most, um, um, most symptom endorsements on the CBCL attention scale. Now, um, as was mentioned previously, um, uh, what this indicates is that there is um, an underlying continuum, but that doesn't include that uh, there are, it doesn't necessarily have to be a bell curve. There can be a bulk of people who are on the really end of the scale and then a smaller group of people kind of somewhere in the more moderate area and then uh, a group in the, um, at the high end of that scale. And that is what we found. With respect to the CBCL data, and it's correct that the CBCL items doesn't uh, don't really, uh, that has been mentioned also in previous literature, don't really uh, uh, map uh, exactly on the DSM. However, what we found was that um, children diagnosed with, uh, with ADHD um, using the, the, NSF, uh, the, the uh, DSM diagnosis, um, those children were uh, the vast majority was in the in that group of uh, children that is actually at the high end of that underlying continuum. Yeah, one of the problems with most of the scales that are used, and this is true of the SNAP and the Connors and so forth, they, they essentially are half of of the scale. Uh, the um, the center of the bell curve would be at the zero point. Um, because uh, they don't include those who are superior in uh, the various uh, traits that are mentioned. Uh, it only takes a pathological end. So that if you rephrased uh, things as, um, for example, um, ability to pay attention, you'd find some people at one extreme end, uh, some at the other extreme, and you'd find uh, most in the middle that have just an average ability to pay attention. And you could take each of the other um, uh, ADHD uh, symptoms and rephrase them as a positive attribute and uh, probably come up with something that would look pretty much like a bell-shaped curve. 
I, I would actually disagree with that because I also analyze data uh, like the like a snap that has actually this um, uh, more uh, with a scale that is adapted to measure differences in the let's say unaffected uh, majority of the of the general population. Um, and when analyzing those data, we still came up with a not bell-shaped uh, bell curve, but still with uh, a mixture distribution providing a better description of the data with um, clusters of people in the lower end and then smaller clusters in the, at the higher end of the country. So it, I, I guess depends a little, and that was also was a Finnish uh, uh, birth cohort that we analyzed uh, uh, the data of. So it's... It, I think it really depends uh, uh, on the um, complex statistical models that, that you're fitting. I mean, if you model with a bell curve, then, then the result is going to be something that looks like a bell curve. However, if you look, uh, use a little bit more cutting-edge statistical methods, you can actually detect this clustering structure in the, in the data. Okay, so with that in mind, um, certainly focused on that topic a little bit, but again, I know our time is short today, so I want to rumble through a couple of other questions that have come through to try to be as uh, fair to our listeners as possible. One of the other things that uh, keeps on popping up in some of the electronic uh, questions uh, has to do with not only the cross-sectional finding, but what long-term implications uh, these results mean, and uh, I'd be curious to know your thoughts about the long-term implications about uh, this work? Um, long-term in a clinical sense? Uh, or, or, again, because you certainly looked at and found an age effect as we, across the continuum as well? Um, <clears throat> well, the, the current study, uh, the, the, the idea of setting up the study um, such that we were analyzing 7-year-olds, 10-year-olds, uh, and 12-year-olds um, and then the, in the previous uh, Finnish birth cohort study, we had uh, adolescents that were aged between 16 and 18. Um, the, the idea of uh, uh, trying to find subtypes or subtype clustering um, at these earlier age, because the, the, the idea was definitely to try to get closer to latency age where, where the subtypes might be more um, clearly expressed. Uh, however, we did really not find, at least when looking at the CVCL uh, attention subscale items, um, we did not find any um, significant change over time, other that, other than um, uh, the, the, the some of like two of the, the inattentiveness items were. Uh, more highly endorsed in the younger children. Uh, so, again, um, the CBCL does not show uh, uh, the subtypes at either age in a longitudinal way than, um, and also at each age the diagnosed uh, kids were at the higher end. So the, the, the implications in, in, a, in, a, um, uh, in a different it would be uh, to also come back to what Dr. Arnold was saying. Uh, it would, of course, be very interesting to analyze uh, a large sample of DSM data um, collected in the general population to see uh, in how far we can distinguish um, between subtypes using DSM uh, uh, symptoms directly. So, Gita, would you say which two um, attention items uh, were more uh, prominent in the younger group? If you if you go in the paper to the, um, I'm looking at Figure Two. Yes, exactly. You see that it's this, in the seven-year-old. This one item. Um, uh, let's see which one. It, it says on the on the on the x-axis which item it is peaks out more highly, is more highly endorsed than at later ages. At the, in the 12 year old, you see the pattern of uh, symptom endorsement kind of flatten out a little bit more. So things certainly okay. change with age. But so uh, let me ask you another question, because ultimately, although we're talking about uh, continuums and distributions, you know, certainly one of the things that we always focus upon 
is the necessity to obtain symptom-based checklists. Um, yeah. Ultimately, the question certainly begs to be asked, um, does, does what you found here question or suggest that perhaps more information needs to be done about uh, content of checklists in order to help make uh, important clinical decisions? Well, I mean, this is a little bit a, a clinical uh, uh, question that I'm not necessarily uh, have the sufficient expertise as a statistician to answer. But um, I mean, what, what I can, if, I, I think the, uh, as far as I have been informed by my colleagues, the CDCL is widely used as a checklist, right? Um, to uh, um, uh, in in uh, so I. <laughs> I don't know, but maybe Dr. Arn can answer that. I, I don't know in how far it would make sense to include um, uh, uh, more directly uh, uh, mapped items um, that more directly map on, on, on the DSM. Uh, and certainly I would be interested to, uh, to see that type of data confirm basically what we have found now, both in the in the SNAP and the um, and the CBCL, that there is no real evidence uh, of, um, of of the the DSM subtype. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I wasn't quite sure what the question was here. So here, let me maybe the, rephrase it. You know, people are very busy. We now have uh, this data about a possible continuum. Um, you know, certainly. Busy practitioners, particularly primary care folks, don't have time for long, expensive checklists and all that other sort of jazz. Um, what implications do you think this whole notion of continuum have about uh, what implications it may have for our checklists or other measures that are we, we typically advocate for the use for if there's actually a continuum? Well, of course, by definition, the first uh, criterion of five uh, to diagnose ADHD is that they have to have an excess of the symptoms. They have to have a, a clinically meaningful uh, severity of at least six uh, symptoms from one of the lists. So right away, uh, the severity is sort of implied in that, and um, uh, the way most people get to that is asking parents and teachers to uh, rate uh, on on the 18 uh uh, symptoms, which uh, is, is what the SNAP essentially is, or ADHD rating scale, same thing. And um, uh, if uh, they they rate something as uh, pretty much or pretty often being a problem, uh, then you count that as a, as a symptom. Uh, but one thing uh, that I think we all need a reminder of in this is that the symptom count alone doesn't make ADHD. And in a sense, that also implies that severity alone doesn't make ADHD. Uh, you, you have to have you have to meet the other five criteria in addition: uh, the pervasiveness, the chronicity, uh, early onset, uh, and impairment. And uh, the the one that's uh, most often forgotten is that the symptoms are not better explained by another disorder like a mood disorder or anxiety, PTSD, or something like that. So that certainly, again, highlights that there are some uses for these checklists, but they certainly aren't the same thing as uh, establishing a diagnosis and perhaps maybe better used with tracking things over time rather than actually making a diagnosis in and of themselves. Right. Yeah, and I think that, um, I mean, the current diagnosis is, uh, is uh, as was just said, uh, six of the, uh, on, on each of the, the two subsets, um, now the thing is obviously that if a um, if this continuum seems to make more sense than a subtype uh, um, description of the phenotype of, of the ADHD phenotype, then it obviously would make more sense to uh, use a certain number uh, of uh, of uh, symptoms and not a combination of six of this or six of that list. Uh, because then you get kind of these weird uh, cases where a uh, child with uh, uh, 10 symptoms on one list that doesn't get a diagnosis 
because it doesn't have any on on the other, uh, which is also kind of described in in the in the paper. So it probably would would make sense to to change that to just recognize the underlying continuum mm-hmm. and okay um, organize the the symptom counts along this continuum. Yeah, and actually uh, DSM three R I think had that system. It was just one list. And you had to have, I believe, eight out of 14 uh, symptoms to make the diagnosis. So that may be evidence to move to that direction. So yeah. let me just, again, uh, try to keep us moving along there. Let me ask the operator if there are any uh, phone uh, questions for us so we can get as many of our uh, uh, questions answered as we can. Once more, ladies and gentlemen, star one if you have an audio question. Are there any questions for us on uh, audio? And I'm showing no audio questions at this time, sir. Okay, so let me move to another uh, question, because I want to be as fair as I can to folks. Uh, uh, Gene, one of the things you started mentioning were some uh, uh, non-traditional things that you think about. And we had a couple of questions about things, uh, about non-traditional, non-FDA-approved kind of things uh, that you alluded to. And I I was wondering if you could talk about the evidence base uh, for uh, some of these things that, you know, we hear a lot about. Uh, particularly neurofeedback and perhaps hyperbaric treatments? Okay. Uh, First of all, uh, one of the best studied, um, I I think, is essential fatty acid supplementation. And I I recently reviewed that for a chapter, and it appears uh, there are about um, uh, eight uh, placebo-controlled studies uh, in this area. And uh, the upshot of it is that uh, a mixture of uh, essential fatty acids, mainly EPA, uh, eicosapentaenoic acid, but with some DHA, docosahexaenoic acid, and uh, GLA, that's gamma-linolenic acid, which is the omega-6 series. The mixture of those in several studies uh, showed promising results with an effect size of of about 0.5, um, a medium effect, and uh, th- that it takes uh, probably three or four months in order to see the results. It has to allow time for the um, the uh, fatty acids to be incorporated into the the neuronal membranes and metabolism and so forth. So uh, this uh, particular treatment meets what I call the the sex criterion: safe, easy, cheap, and sensible. Um, in that we know that uh, these are um, uh, essential uh, fatty acids needed for neuronal membranes. There's been evidence uh, that uh, DHA, for example, deficiency can interfere with visual attention in infants and uh, consequently has resulted in addition to formulas and things like that. So um, we're on a a, a pretty much of a mainstream kind of uh, thing, even though There's not an FDA-approved indication, which is mainly because uh, nobody with sufficient money to mount the FDA uh, approval process has got into it. Um, Then uh, you mentioned neurofeedback. There are uh, several uh, uh, promising studies of that, uh, not all of them published, but most of the studies have one flaw or another. And uh, one of them is uh, failure of randomization. Um, uh, Another is uh, lack of blinding uh, and uh, not not using a control group with uh, equal duration and intensity because uh, this is a glamorous treatment. It it has a large placebo effect, so you do need to have that kind of control uh, uh, evidence. Uh, We're currently doing a uh, a placebo-controlled study uh, with uh, uh, double blinding, uh, we hope. Anyhow, we're testing that issue. Um, and uh, meanwhile, uh, it's a pretty expensive treatment. So although it's it's probably safe, uh, and uh, although there's uh, a reasonably sensible uh, hi- hypothesis based on findings in brain waves uh, in uh, ADHD versus normal controls. It doesn't quite meet the sex criterion because it's so uh, expensive and uh, difficult. It takes like 40 treatments uh, at a time. So we need a little better evidence to really recommend it. Um, then uh, you mentioned uh, hyperbaric treatment, and there's, uh, to my knowledge, very, very uh, few data 
on that, and, and I don't think I've seen a, a placebo-controlled study on that. Um, it, um, uh, it again, it's a glamorous treatment that probably has a uh, a large placebo effect, and I assume it's fairly expensive, requiring a hyperbaric chamber. So um, I, I don't really have enough data to to say much about that one. So in other words, all of these, uh, with the exception of uh, the essential fatty acids, be more exotic and perhaps expensive. Well, there, there are some other things that are, are uh, practical that a person could try implementing. One of them is massage. And uh, there, there have been uh, several studies uh, that in which um, uh, effects on attention span and activity level were measured. Uh, only, uh, I think, one, maybe two of those studies were actually in diagnosed ADHD. But in other populations, uh, they, they measured those uh, symptoms, those traits, and um, uh, found uh, promising uh, effects uh, compared to a, a uh, control condition, although it was not blinded. It was, uh, you know, um, an open, uh, randomized control. Um, the nice thing about massage is that um, it, it seems perfectly uh, safe um, and is something parents can do with their uh, youngsters. It's particularly helpful, I found, in clinically at bedtime uh, to, for the parent to give the child a, a deep pressure back rub um, uh, for 10 or 15 minutes. Uh, and it seems to improve the parent-child relationship. Um, and uh, and helps the child get to sleep, even if it doesn't help the ADHD symptoms uh, otherwise. Uh, another um, thing somewhat related to that uh, and, and applicable to preschoolers is um, uh, efforts to um, stimulate the vestibular and cerebellar system. And um, this can easily be done at home by things, well, rough and tumble play is, is one way to do it, uh, rather than having the kid watch TV or a movie, uh, the old-fashioned uh, horsey rides and things like that. But uh, things like swings and, and uh, hammocks and, and um, trampolines and uh, so forth. And there's even a little sit-and-spin toy for toddlers uh, that uh, tends to give a lot of rotational vestibular stimulation. Mm -hmm. um, so these are things kids enjoy, and uh, there doesn't appear to be much risk, not, not much expense, uh, fairly easy. So uh, they they kind of pass the the sex rule. Okay, so um, that that's very helpful. Um, you know, certainly as you said, a lot of these are not FDA approved. But moving back to actually a more uh, actually a question for both of you. Um, so certainly we 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 collect information, and, and this study focuses on one form of information. Do we know about other informants for these youngsters? For example, um, you know, we always talk about getting information uh, from multiple informants for youngsters. Um, do, what, what implications does this also have? Do, would we find similar results for different informants, do you think? Um, I uh, have personally not compared different uh, uh, different the, the effects of different evaluators, but I know that they, there are several studies out there um, that have been finding differences between mother ratings and teacher ratings, and sometimes also mother and father ratings. And I know um, that researchers in the Virginia Institute of Behavioral um, and Psychiatric Genetics. Um, Lynn and Ease and colleagues have um, have conducted some studies and also showing how to how to correct for that. But uh, as I said, um, personally, I have only looked at uh, at the data here that we have published here, um, mainly also because of the availability of the data. That was the main reason. If I had had different types of um, um, Ratings, then, um, then, then it would have been uh, possible. Of course, it's very interesting to compare. However, I would like to mention that here in this uh, study we used mother ratings, whereas in the um, um, in the previous study of the Finnish birth cohorts, I, um, if I remember correctly, those were teacher ratings. 
And so the main uh, main conclusion uh, was the same uh, independent of the ratings. But that was is obviously not a direct comparison of uh, of different raters. Yeah, I, I think it's a, a very important question because. Uh, by definition, um, ADHD has to occur in more than one setting, and that's usually home and school, although it could be things like um, uh, Boy Scouts and, and Little League and things like that in the community. But um, the, uh, the problem uh, in many cases is getting the ratings from teachers, uh, and this varies regionally. Uh, in our area, fortunately, most teachers are pretty cooperative, but um, there are parts of the country where uh, teachers uh, do not, uh, particularly in a research design, uh, are not, uh, uh, it's not easy to obtain the teacher ratings. So uh, in, clinically, I think you can ask the parents to insist on on the teacher giving some input um, and in order to uh, first make a diagnosis and secondly, and very important, monitor the results of treatment. Uh, because uh, in in many cases uh, the problem is mainly brought out at school under the stress of needing to pay attention, sit still, do complete their work, and parents may not notice the problem so much at home, um, and therefore may not see the benefit of whatever treatment is being given. So you need the teacher's input um, uh, to be able to make sure that you're checking. Uh, adequately on the results of treatment. Um, let me ask the operator uh, any online questions right now for us from uh, from the phone. Ian, I'm showing no audio questions at this time, sir. Okay, so let me ask again. Unfortunately, we won't be able to go and answer all of the questions that have been posed today. So uh, for those of you who we haven't been able to get to, I apologize. But we have one last question, and I think this is more up uh, your alley, Dr. Arnold. But as you were talking about uh, TV and the such in your prior answer, uh, people were actually very interested and uh, about the relationship between uh, video games and television watching and disruptive behaviors and ADHD. Uh, can you can you want to talk about that for a moment? Yeah, well, I, I think the, uh, the watchword in all of this is moderation. You know, a, a little bit of TV watching, uh, a little bit of video game playing is not going to be a problem. But when uh, it, it consumes the child's waking hours uh, to the extent that they're deprived of other normal uh, <clears throat> activities that, that stimulate uh, brain and intellectual development and uh, uh, things like um, just playing outside, uh, the, the uh, running around, uh, being out in open green spaces. There was one interesting study that um, a after activities in open green spaces, um, behavior was uh, better than uh, when um, uh, activities were inside or um, in open non-green spaces like paved uh, playgrounds and things. Um, uh, actually getting in contact with the soil has been proposed as one thing. Again, not very not very uh, conclusive evidence, but uh, a hint that perhaps um, uh, there may be microbes in the soil that are beneficial uh, to be exposed to in some way. Um, and then um, just the, the social relations, uh, that uh, playing with other kids, the give and take uh, that's involved in that um, uh, helps to sharpen the brain. After all, the human brain was developed mainly uh, to regulate social interactions, uh, the, the frontal uh, lobes, uh, and the executive function uh, were largely uh, needed for that purpose uh, as herd animals. Sure. So, so uh, unfortunately, Dr. Arnold, we're going to have to wrap it up. Okay. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. So, first of all, let me thank you, Dr. Arnold. Let me thank you, Dr. Lopke, for joining me today and certainly for helping us uh, with this uh, latest evidence and uh, its clinical implications and its implications for practitioners. Um, I'd also certainly want to thank our audience for joining us today. And if you weren't able to get your questions answered, please uh, send an email to uh, questions at cmeoutfitters.com uh, by November 23rd. And we'll, Dr. Lupke, Dr. Arnold, and I will uh, answer some questions online over the next couple of weeks and post responses at uh, the www.neurosciencecme.com 
slash journal club. And again, I'm Dr. Bob Findling. I'd like to thank you all for taking the time to join us today. And I'm hoping that you are able to take our discussion and this evidence into your practice and uh, help our patients uh, the best we know how. Thank you so much for listening.